0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, British Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa. On Saturday, the Blaffer Art Museum opens Did You Know We Taught Them How to Dance? Sarawiwa's first solo American museum exhibition. We'll feature her recent videos, photographs, and a sound installation, all made in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria between 2013 and this year. The show is organized by Amy L. Powell and will be on view at the Blaffer through December 19th. It will then travel to the Cranert Art Museum at the University of Illinois. Sara Weewe's work typically uses Niger culture, from its food to its traditional arts, such as masquerade, to Nollywood, the Nigerian film industry that by some measures is the most productive in the world, to address issues related to colonialism, environmental degradation caused by the oil industry, and more. In the United States, Sara Wiewa's work has been shown at the New Museum, the Manil Collection, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, and her 2010 documentary, This is Africa, was shown on HBO. In addition to the show at the Blaffer, her work is included in the exhibition, Disguise, Masks, and Global African Art, which just closed at the Seattle Art Museum. It will travel to the Fowler Museum at UCLA next month, and then to the Brooklyn Museum. Next year, Sara Wewa's work will be screened at the Tate Britain. One more note. Be sure to check out manpodcast.com not just for images of Sara Wewa's work, but for full-length streams of several of the videos she and I discuss on the program. If and when excerpts of the new work becomes available, we'll add it to the page as the week goes on. See you in a Sara Wewa for the full hour, after the break. International Pop at the Dallas Museum of Art chronicles the global emergence of pop in the 1960s and early 1970s. While previous exhibitions have primarily focused on the dominance of pop activity in New York and London, this exhibition examines work from artists across the globe who were confronting many of the same radical developments. International Pop navigates a fast-paced world packed with bold and thought-provoking imagery, revealing a vibrant cultural period shaped by widespread political revolution. International Pop is on view October 11th to January 17th. Visit dma.org for more information. Experience tomorrow's art history today for free and in a beautiful, intimate setting at Blaffer Art Museum. On view this fall, did you know we taught them how to dance? The first solo museum exhibition for British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa, and a test of art's capacity to envision new concepts of environmentalism. Also on view, Time Image, An International Group Survey of Temporal Concerns in Contemporary Art. More at blafferartmuseum.org. One of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's most significant holdings is its comprehensive collection of works by Robert Motherwell, one of the figureheads of abstract expressionism, the most important movement in the history of American art. A selection from this collection is on view now, featuring work from Motherwell's Open, Drunk with Turpentine, Elegies, and Collage series. For the Modern's exhibition schedule, visit... Themodern.org. And we're back. Zina Sarawiwa, welcome to the Modern Art
1: Notes Podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler.
0: So, as a former journalist, recovering journalist myself, I'd like to start with your previous career, which was journalism. Before we get to your work, you were a journalist across a range of BBC platforms. Why did you leave journalism? And really, kind of more to the point, why was visual art a a destination, a place you wanted to go?
1: Well, I was a TV presenter, my last form of journalism, and I put it in inverted commas. I didn't always feel like a journalist, but I, I was the last thing I did. Um, in the UK was I was a cultural reporter for the BBC on television and you know it was an amazing job and I really enjoyed meeting people and interviewing people but I didn't really enjoy being on television at all and I didn't feel that I had any sort of power or sway over the narratives that we were promoting and I've always been interested in more the underlying tectonic plates that inform an idea and not just having to, like, take them as a given and work with them and play, you know, perform them on television. It just sort of didn't suit my my, my develop, developing temperament. I mean, the switch to art was kind of a, it, was, it took a little bit longer. It was a couple of years after I left TV. Basically, what it was is that I had never dealt with the death of my father, who is Ken were a writer, activist. And he was killed in 1995 in, in November by by the military dictator in Nigeria. Exactly, in Nigeria. Yeah. Um, and so I had never really dealt with it. I'd always had this career that I was actually quite proud of that didn't necessarily always focus on this glaring fact of my of my past. My surname is extremely extremely unique even within Nigeria. And so you know there's no denying who I was in some senses. And you know I just and also just as, as a black woman in the UK, it was I was always very happy and proud to be able to talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. I was never pigeonholed. I sort of made that kind of my business to make sure that I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. Even though in my pride, I always made documentaries on my own. And I know that I always dealt with Africa, blackness, Brazil, all the things that interested me, but from my own personal perspective. But my more public career, it was very open. And I really enjoyed that opportunity. But then this fact of what happened kept on as somebody warned me, it kept on coming to the surface, rising to the surface, demanding to be dealt with. And I'd refused up until a particular moment where I could no longer do it. I was talking to, I think it was a friend of mine, B. Bandele, who's a filmmaker who directed the um, Half the Yellow Sun, actually. I remember where we were. We were in Brixton. And uh, we were at the top of the, the one of the cinemas there. So, and I just remember crying, saying, I, I think I want to make a film about my father. And up until that point, that was the last thing I would have wanted to do. And so began a process of me connecting with another filmmaker friend. I knew I couldn't do it alone, and we wanted to make a documentary. And what was coming up was this moment where, you know, our family and other families were taking shell oil to court for the, you know, their culpability within the deaths of my father and the eight other people that were hanged. Oh, Let me it.
0: jump in right there for a quick second. Shell Oil, R- Royal Dutch Shell, was the is the company that has done the most exploitation of oil resources in
1: in the Nigerian In the Goland, land, yes. And so yeah. we thought, oh, let's do, let's film this process. Let's film the te- the final taking to court, taking 14 years. Let's film this whole process, and you know, let's use that as a jumping off point as an exploration of your relationship with your father. And, you know, we'd begun it. And, you know, the person I was working with is a really respected filmmaker and and, uh, someone I considered a friend. And I really and we could not stop arguing. (laughs) And I realized that underneath it also, I didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't want to be on screen. I didn't want to make a documentary about the father daughter relationship. I didn't want to do any of those things. I didn't want to be the object, subject, object in front of a camera. I I wasn't comfortable with any of those things. And there were so many questions that were unanswered and so many other sort of political platitudes and, you know, the relationship between the personal and political. There were so many issues that were so tangled up that a documentary could not deal with. And as I was working on this thing with him, it was very apparent that it wouldn't work. So this is how I ended up getting to New York. It's a sort of weird story. We went to HBO to try and sell this documentary idea about my father. And I gave them a copy of a film I made called This Is My Africa. And um, just so that they could have my email address. I hadn't made any cards or whatever. They ended up watching the film. <laughs> they ended up watching the film unbeknownst to me and then they said they wanted to license it and show it on their channel, which was amazing to me. And that actually was the, the thing that precipitated my change to my decided decision to move to New York, which is actually a really important part of the story of how I became an artist. Because it's it was in the it's in New York that you know, art found me. I was in a stage of my life where I was just ready to inquire about so many more things. I would just, what, journalism was not satisfactory to me to ask the questions that I wanted to ask. And to bring in the impulses that I was interested in as well, you know, a lot of spiritual impulses and all sorts of other areas of life that I wanted to mix into my work and my ideas. And so, you know, I got to New York and at that moment, also a friend of mine who I'd worked with at the BBC, He was working at Pace Gallery, and he said, oh, I'm, you know, on the board of this not-for-profit art space in Soho. Why don't you do a show there? And so we made that happen. And I said, let me say about Nollywood, because Nollywood was something that was coming up in my life. I'd written an essay for Peter Hugo's monograph on Nollywood, and it was something that was around and informing. So it was changing me. The experience and my interaction with these Nollywood films was affecting me and changing me.
0: So this presumably was your show, Sharon Stone and Abuja, at Location One which featured Hugo Wangeshi Mutu and McKinley Thomas both of whom have been on the Man podcast we'll have links on manpodcast.com and Andrew CBO.
1: Right, yeah. So, I mean, it was, I, I was able to do the show by myself. But I'd never done an art show before. I'd never made art before. And I knew that I wanted to bring in other voices. And so it was, you know, a really great opportunity to work with these women and with Peter. It was a lot of fun. Andrew Siebo was in this as well, a Nigerian photographer, fantastic photographer. So, yeah, so that's when that came about. And the films that I made there were the first time I'd ever made art films. So the films I made were Morning Class, where, this, uh, where I filmed Nollywood actresses crying on cue. For the camera. And then I did uh, my two old Nollywood short films, uh, Phyllis and The Deliverance of Comfort. So yeah, these kind of, they, they just seem to sort of automatically come out of me one way or another. I wasn't in charge almost of, of this. I just got out the way. And I let these works come through me, and that is literally how I became an artist. I got out of my own way, and my true voice, I feel, is coming. It was allowed to come through.
0: In the literature world, or in the writing world, there is kind of a classic struggle that a writer has, as he or she considers whether or not to write fiction or nonfiction, and 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 to produce fiction or nonfiction. And sometimes there's a transition, but it, it's kind of almost a cliched. Battle in the in the mind. Did you was that important to you? Did you think about nonfiction versus creating your own stories or or?
1: I mean, I think all my work lies between documentary and performance. You know, well,
0: that's why I yeah. asked. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, fiction and nonfiction. So it was a really interesting kind of line that I've been dancing across the entire time. You know, what does it mean when I sit in front of my camera, I shave my head, and I'm forcing myself to cry about a death I'd never cried about, the death of my dad? What does that mean? Is that, is that documentary? You know, what's it recording? Is it, but it's, it's both, it's, it's real and it's a performance at the same time. And performance is something that is so interesting to me. We perform every day. You know, every movement, the way we walk, we're, we're, we're suggesting all sorts of things. Everything is choreography one way or another. And so that's what's interesting to me and what that means and what that means cross-culturally as well. So yeah, I, I did, I absolutely considered it. The Nollywood films, um, Phyllis is just such an interesting example, but asked me genuinely, is this real? And I'm like, what, what does that mean? What, what do you mean, is it real? It's about a psychic vampire who wears different wigs and her eyes go, white. Why, why would you say that? And it's so interesting because, I mean, this, secretly I didn't tell them this, secretly I, I, it, it is real. I believe Phyllis is real. I believe Phyllis told me what her name was. I believe Phyllis told me that she wanted the on Warwick. So I enjoy this idea of these other forces around one sort of coming through you to express and to tell the world something.
0: We'll have a link to Phyllis on, actually we'll show Phyllis on manpodcast.com, the film in which you reference forcing yourself to cry as part of the process of mourning or beginning to mourn your father's death. It was titled Sarogua Mourning. It's been shown at the Pulitzer Foundation. Or the now called the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, and was projected onto the Manhattan Bridge this past summer.
1: And it was the Stevenson Gallery in South Africa that actually made it happen. They helped me make the piece, and they were first shown in there um, at their gallery in a wonderful show called "What We Talk About When We Talk About Love."
0: That's right. That's right. Kind of my last question about your your career transition before we get into some of the work. There's something within journalism about. You know, wherein journalists like to take a story into the belly of the beast, if you will. And you're showing new work at the Blaffer, work that in part engages the oil industry in Houston. And as you surely know, Houston is the home to the U.S. headquarters of Royal Dutch Shell, as we noted before, the biggest extractor of oil from where your family is from how much was that in your thought process
1: actually not at all i was just really lucky to have been commissioned by the Manil, and have, i was doing a show at that um, i was one of the artists in the progress of love which
0: was a show that kind of happened more or less simultaneously in lagos st louis and in houston
1: exactly yeah i had work in st louis and also at the Manil in texas and so yeah, so that that was my introduction to Texas, and what an introduction! I was not expecting to enjoy Texas so much, you know. You know, you have ideas about what Texas is supposed to be like, and what, you know what you're supposed to feel about it, especially when you're in New Yorker or, or, or what have you, or even at London, that you have certain preconceptions about the South and about Texas. I loved it. I appreciated the kind of the, the interest in art the the support for art and the kind of lack of retention also as well I really just enjoyed the art world in Houston and so yes yeah, so that that was my introduction but yes what a wonderful coincidence that also it's like you know the energy capital of, of the united states but also this it, it, what it allows me to do is to establish that connection that relationship between the Land lands and niger delta and america you know quarter of oil or of all of america's oil up until 2010 came from nigeria and the Niger delta and that link isn't no one thinks about that link no one thinks about that There's this is a very powerful connection between these two places you know people think there's no connection with africa apart from you know a, a percentage of the population in america came from Africa, either, you know, via the slave trade or in 20th and 21st century immigration. But there are all these other links. And I think it's really important to establish that link. And that's what I'm kind of trying to do, do in the show, but not in ways that people expect.
0: So speaking of that oil and, and end of Shell, Shell's infrastructure in, in the Niger Delta has a major presence in one of the new works you're showing in Houston. It's called Crickpo Pipeline. It's a five screen, five rectangle if you will projection what is the presence shell has in the piece and how did you use it as a building block or layer your ideas if you will on top of that presence
1: I've invited a particular masquerade performance that we have in, in Agoniland, specific to Agoniland, which is an antelope masquerade, where, the, uh, where mainly young men will put on these antelope masks and do tumbles, and it's very virile and active and, and super engaging. A lot
0: athletic. Of the, yeah,
1: athletic and super fun, more than anything else. But I want to, to transpose that the display of athleticism and and assertiveness onto the remnants of the of the infrastructure of oil within the Niger Delta and what well, agoni land specifically so what's happening in Agoniland land that you know shell pulled out and so actually it was very hard to find the pipelines i was looking for because normally if you google it you'll see all these like rows and rows and rows and rows of pipelines on top of on top of the land you know get, snaking down around villages I and mean, it's super like destructive and just unbelievable that something like that could happen just Utterly disrespectful. So, and I was looking for that. Now I found it in one place only, which I, I it was kind of i i wasn't expecting not to find them everywhere i thought they'd be easy to find it wasn't easy to find because actually what's happened is that because there are people who are stealing those pipelines now because what's happened is that people are thinking fine if you're not going to include us in the oil industry we're going to we're going to do the work artisanally we're going to do it for ourselves so that's when you have these militants who've turned to you know um sabotaging pipelines or or stealing infrastructure or what have you that's what's happened so what's happened now is that there's hardly any anywhere and it's buried in the ground sometimes or they've had to dismantle it from on top uh, on top of on top of the land where it was so it's actually really hard to find the one place where we found it is still very dangerous and there's like a militant I think his name Ateke um, who you do you don't want to mess with so I mean I'm you know I I live for my art but I won't die for it either so (laughs) so there was that one particular place where I was you know took lots of photographs and I was staring at it thinking we've got to do it got to do this but it just felt like it wasn't totally necessary so actually what i wanted to do is you know use sites where they used to exist where pipelines used to exist or where the, where they exist currently but are buried so they're also suggested and then there are other elements of oil infrastructure that we have flow stations a rusting flow station and we have i use also well heads
0: which is pretty huge i mean it's large enough that i don't know there are four or five people on it and it still seems enormous yeah
1: the thing about that is that you couldn't see it from the ground i could just you know you could see the tops of it so i, I used a drone for this piece and when we sent the drone up and i was looking at it i thought my goodness it's amazing it's just it's huge it's much bigger than you imagine i mean it's not vast but it's You know, when I asked my performers to climb up there, they could climb up and dance around. It was very hot, actually, it's metal, so it's under the hot midday sun, so it was actually very hot for them to be performing on that space. But yeah, so this is what I wanted. I wanted the sense of our culture reclaiming this land, reclaiming this infrastructure once again. And the infrastructure is disappearing or but it also makes its mark on the land in so many ways and also like so many of our roads we've got a road called refinery road and everything is all geared towards the um the oil industry and i i sort of i, I kind of hate that i kind of wish that it wasn't called refinery road i wish it was a different name that we had that was a local indigenous indigenous name and that's kind of such a colonial hangover because it was really all about extracting uh, raw materials and that you know that's what the roads are named after that particular process nothing more lyrical nothing more evocative of the people that live there and their ideas and their cosmology so so yeah so that's what that piece was about so it's reclaiming these spaces most of which are decommissioned but some of which are not some of which are visible and some which are invisible but very much there so this is another invisible force the cariper masquerade you know I'm inviting that to sort of, like, claim it, reclaim this land, and redefine it.
0: To clarify, I think you're using the drone to film the piece. There's not a drone buzzing around in the piece.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was to film the piece. Uh, yeah. have fun, there was no, <laughs> no weaponry, just a camera.
0: <laughs> so in Karakpo Pipeline, we don't see the pipeline itself until a little over nine minutes into the roughly 27, 28-minute piece, at which point we see the dancers on it.
1: It's one exposed pipeline, yeah. We have to find one, yeah.
0: But I have a hunch that everything else we see in the piece before that is oil-related infrastructure, every road. Everything, everything. Everything. Should we, you know, as viewers, read the dancers on the pipeline as a metaphor for prioritizing or returning indigenous culture or labor or creativity to the land, to giving it a different place of primacy in regards to the global energy industry or colonialization or anything that happened after colonialization?
1: In a word, yes. That's exactly what I want. I spoke, one of the people that helped me sort of try and find places to film this piece, The Location Scout, he said to me, you know, the white men, they used to run this place. They were like gods here. No one dared speak to them. And, you know, he used those exact words I remember thinking they were like gods, really, really <laughs> so yeah, so I thought no well let's let's have our own spiritual energies reclaim this particular space again, and you know replace the old gods with with the rightful ones.
0: you make you of masks and masking societies, as they're called, in in several works, what is a masking society and why did or does that and they interest you?
1: I mean, this masquerade is ever present part of, you know, African life all over the continent. And I mean, I barely understand it myself. You know, I'm still, you know, learning about it, what it means and, you know, I learned-
0: It's a good point to, good place to point out that that you, you grew up in England and return to Africa, I think, when you were 19?
1: Yeah, we used to go back every summer holiday up until we were about 14, and then didn't go back for another 10 years after that. And then, I think, For me, it was about five years later, I made some film documentaries in Lagos. And then I didn't come back to the Niger Delta properly and live there until two years ago. So, yeah, um, I spent most of my life in the UK. But, you know, I got to know my village as well, not just the city, because, you know, we're from Port Harcourt, which is the city. But we also were made to go to our village and, you know, live a village lifestyle, which we hated when we were children. But for me, it's the place where most of my artwork takes place now i love i love it there i just think the african village is this totally misunderstood place and space it is so modern in so many ways that people don't understand and cosmopolitan rather is what i'm looking for Yet yeah, at the same time very much of the earth and primordial but you know pre-industrial but it also, you know, I mean, you'll have so I when I first went to these around the new year, you have a lot of masquerade being played, as we said, and you play a masquerade. And they're played around all the villages. There, there are 111 villages in Lagoni Land where I'm from. And so, you know, you'll go to I, I just happened to be in my own village. And you know, and you have people there with their smartphones. They're just cheap little smartphones, or you know, kind of iPady sort of thing, tablets, and they're they're filming it. They're filming all these masquerades. You've got this amazing mixture of of you know the modern world and tradition sort of mixed together. And it's just a normal thing. And this is the village, and you know, a lot of people live in uh, adobe buildings. Some live in in buildings that are made of cement, but not necessarily. So it's just this really amazing place. And Nagorny Land also, when you enter it, it's just, it, for me, it's a little bit like Middle Earth. It's just such a strange place. It has an incredible atmosphere. And you just see so many incredible, incredible things. And, you know, there's no way you can't make art when you're there, you know. So for me, it's, you know, people go into many African villages, and it's always about solving a particular problem. And that's what you get when you go in there. That's what you're looking for. That's what, are the imagery, those the ideas that you're going to extract. I went in there looking for, for creativity, for art, for masquerade, for masks. Because it's still the masquerade is still so mysterious and, you know, I don't really understand what it's about. So I went around looking for mask makers because I just, you know, it was one of the few forms of creativity that you're still seeing taking place, even though it's also dying out. And then I discovered a whole new form of mask masquerade making, which seemed very humorous and political at the same time and also contained like images of my father. On a lot of these masks, and then you know images of like deities like Mammy Water, which is a kind of a deity that comes from many different places, but it's often a woman with long hair with a snake around her neck. Even like Osama bin Laden on some of these masquerade things. I mean, it, like any kind of almost carnival culture, they're referencing goodies and baddies and all sorts of different elements and forces in life and to see that on a masquerade mask for me was just really tremendously exciting and it was colourful and it wasn't this. it was a completely different Ogoniland that I was used to hearing about and understanding the Ogoniland I was used to just personally was an extremely boring place and also if you look at it from a journalistic point of view it's just like terrifying place where all these terrible things happen, it's pollution and you know there's militancy and so there are all these things that you're worried about you're either bored or you're terrified and so So, you know, actually Masquerade opened up the creative side of Land and the Niger Delta and allowed me to enter ideas, cosmologies and, you know, other elements, the aesthetic, the sexual, all these things I was able to access through Masquerade. So that, of course, is why it interests me. And it's seductive. It's mysterious. It's full of amazing music and dance and, and art. So no wonder I was attracted
0: My guest is Zina Sarawiwa. We'll be right back after a break. Transmissions, art in Eastern Europe and Latin America, 1960 to 1980, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. This fascinating new exhibition focuses on the parallels and connections among an international scene of artists and artists' collectives during a vibrant experimental period of technological innovation and political tension, and features series of works and major installations, many of which are on view for the first time. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Uh Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer Francis Stark, This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater, backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh Uh-Oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. Support for the Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting COTA, Digital Excavations in African Art, opening on October 16th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 COTA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers and the Pulitzer's first game developers in residence. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Zina Sarawiwa. You've engaged with masks in a number of pieces in the last few years, including Men of the Ogele from last year, which is a photographic series, and in The Invisible Man from this year, which is both a photographic series and the mask that you made. It seems a kind of brave leap to make your own mask. So why did you choose to do
1: that? So it's a masquerade when you're confronted with it, you know, you'll go to the Met's Brooklyn Museum or, you know, the Fowler or wherever you go. Even though there's a lot of attempts to try and bridge the gap between yourself as a viewer and these masks, these inert masks that, you know, have been taken from a particular land and placed in a glass case, there is a sense that there's not enough of a... Real, I still feel this distance between myself and the mask. And I feel this distance as an African as well. You know, I don't, I don't know anymore. And even when the explanation is there or even when there are videos of people, you know, the, the mask in action in inverted commas, the communication still isn't there. And I realized that what was missing was the emotional connection. So it's not these factual, it's not, it's, not, it's not about the facts. It's not about saying this mask is performed at this time made by this person, this place, and this is when it's performed, this is what they do. And let us show you it, the mask being danced by a human being. Still doesn't help, doesn't help me. For me, it doesn't, I don't have any relationship with it. It still feels very distant. And I just wanted to enter into my problems with Masquerade sometimes so for example the you know there's one masquerade in my village where the you know guy would like runs around with a machete and (laughs) and it's you know it's really terrifying that's also part of masquerade but i also wanted to confront that i'm like why is it scary why does it have to be about terror why is that a part of our culture but then also i learned a lot from it because the person that that was with me said that no you have to just hold your ground hold your camera hold your ground and then they won't touch you if you run away that's when they might something might happen but if you stand your ground so you know, it's, there's so many things you learn once you just sort of get involved and, you know, allow yourself to get into, into emotionally, but also to question and not be afraid of questioning things and saying what you don't like and what you do like or what scares you. I just I'm not someone who believes in, oh, just because it's like this ancient ritual, I have to respect it. No, I want to understand more. And I also respect what I respect to my emotions. What I respect is how I feel about it. And that's what I want to investigate and so, the idea of having an emotional relationship to me was much more important than establishing that. And so, that's where the invisible man came from. I thought, okay, this idea of like masking, you know, I'd read somewhere about how, you know, we dance our demons or people, you know, this idea of wearing the things you're scared of and like this idea of fear, our relationship with fear was so interesting. I thought, okay, the thing I fear the most is like, you know, all that upsets me the most is people dying in my family. That was, you know, pretty awful and scary my brother and my father and then this idea of disappearing men generally so I felt like okay I want to make a mask that deals with that and I wonder what would happen once I start to wear it or invite other women to wear it and that's the other thing it's a women's mask mostly masquerade is performed by men and it's a, it's a male endeavor and I thought oh that's rubbish we've got to have some women involved in this this is a women's mask and a women's masquerade I started my own masquerade group so I thought okay if I have this mask if I make it and if I what you know what will happen you know people use this as a strategy why can't I but for issues that I care about personally so yeah so that 's where the invisible man came from, so they're my personal issues, but I also think that that 's something that I think lots of people can relate to, male and female so yeah that 's why I made the mask, so I could you know enter into the culture and begin to understand it it 's not the end of my research it 's the very beginning of it to understand the process to understand There's just the beautiful thing about art is that there 's so many layers and levels of of research and understanding that take place whilst you're making that. So I commissioned the piece. I designed it, but I commissioned it from a local carver. You know, trying to find a carver taught me so much about Land. I traveled all over the place with my driver to find these these carvers. And so you learn a lot about the lay of the land. And that's also informed my Caripo piece, for example, just going around trying to find these guys. And then when you're there, you know, working with them about, okay, so what is this, you know, you, you draw something and then they, complete, they do something completely different. You learn about their aesthetic choices and why they're that way. And then you just learn so much just by creating this particular piece. And, you know, I've only just begun. This, the Invisible Man is sort of teaching me what it is about, you know. It's teaching me about my own emotion. It's teaching me about a Goni land. It's teaching me about art more generally. It's on its way to Houston as we speak. I think it arrives in a couple of days. Well tomorrow, actually. And, you know, what does the Invisible Man mean when, when, when he's here, you know? And also masking. Another thing that people don't understand, I've understood by playing with masquerade is how the mask affects the wearer. And it changes the wearer in the same way as the wigs changed Phyllis. So in my old Nollywood film, you know, um, one of the masks, the, my carapau dancers, he's what he has the highest horns on his mask. And when we were finished the, with the whole performance and the whole filming, he had to part with the mask and he kissed it. And he said, my queen, he didn't want to, he didn't want to let go of it. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting that, you know, he, he referred to the mask in the feminine but, and it was his queen and you know the masks affect you in some particular way and this invisible man mask is also big it's the beginning of my journey to understand what masquerade is what masking is and who i am
0: prayer warriors is a new piece that i think debuts at the blaffer it's about these people whose i don't know job if you will is to to pray for other people and teachers, uh, three or four, four of them, and I guess you could almost say their performances, both visually and audially, audi- auditorily. Orally. <laughs> Orally, thank you. I don't, it's, you know, what do I know about the language? And I'm glad you brought it up, because, you know, starting with, with Phyllis and the deliverance of comfort, which I think will also be able to have up on manpodcast.com and continuing through to this new work, Prayer Warriors, Christianity pops up in your work over and over and over again. Is it there as a stand-in that the view, that you want the viewer to recognize as a, a colonial legacy, or do you more want the viewer to approach it as something that has been reclaimed and adapted by, by the people and places in the works?
1: Listen, I don't have an overarching kind of political agenda when it comes to this. In fact, I sort of realise that certain themes keep popping up in my work because you've told me so, People from the I I literally think about the thing I want to make and then I make it. I actually try not to do this thing where I start to think, "Where does this fit into my, you know, my greater oeuvre?" I don't do that. I just like to make the work on its own and see what happens. And then, you know, then often other people say, "Well, do you realize that this is very similar to this? Is very similar to that?" So, you know, I'm I haven't got an agenda actually at all. And you, you know, if you watched The Deliverance of Comfort, there's a scene where I have these young boys dressed up as these kind of evil pastors that are trying to exorcise a young child. In white shifts. In white shifts and with a big like Catholic rosaries around the necks. And crazy yeah, gold crucifix. And there's, you know, I filmed them from below and they're staring down at the camera and they're praying and they're praying. And and I actually love that scene. And I sort of, I didn't realize it, but on some level, like, the, the prayer warriors that I ended up doing I've ended up making for this blaffer show. Uh, It sort of comes from that in a way, except for I was really criticising those particular pastors. That was a definite critique, because obviously this idea of child witches and the way that children are treated who are considered child witches is something that obviously I feel very strongly about. So people that do this to me are, are deluded and evil. And so, yeah, I had a particular idea that I wanted to express there. But then with Prayer Warriors, it wasn't that at all. I'm not you know i'm not interested in the idea of the kind of like the there's a side to the way christianity is practiced in parts of africa where you can think that yes there's a lot of exploitation that takes place and there's a lot wrong with it but i'm not engaging with it on that level because there's also there are many other sides to the way that Christianity is practiced. And I don't think it's just about, oh, these outsiders have given us this religion and it's about controlling us from the outside. It's not that simple. I think that people admit have, we have made it our own.
0: And that's really in Prayer Warriors. There are only two words, and I think it happens twice in the piece, that, you know, your average visitor to a show or to seeing the piece in, in Houston or Illinois or wherever will, will pick up. And those two words are Jesus Christ.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: And they jump out like, you know, in, in the midst of a lot of words that, you know, an American or English-speaking audience isn't going to gonna know what they mean, the words Jesus Christ fly off the screen, fly out of the speakers.
1: All the time. But then at the same time, you're looking at their performance, their physical performances. And I presented it as a performance because that's what it is to me. And the way that they're – there's one particular chap who looks like, I don't know, a member of Jodeci or some sort of New Jack Swing band. He's got glasses on and he's got this – and you know the way he's performing he's it's almost he's almost like a rapper but he's not he's not rapping he's he's praying and his performance is, is glorious to watch it's fantastic and and it is a performance and it's of him and it's of the earth and it's not just this this performance of christianity that's accepted from another country it's just something that's completely agony.
0: there is though a history of american performative christianity going back to revivalism and and continuing through the modern particularly southern church
1: but where is that from i i wager that's from the black african community right yeah you know, this is where i say that i'm not
0: a scholar of american religion and and step back but i i, I would my understanding which could be totally wrong is that, is that revivalism in American Christianity, going back to, say, the Chautauqua movement in the 19th century, came out of the white church. That's not to say that there isn't a black tradition of same, but I think that there isn't a black tradition of the same in America. I
1: mean, we do need an but... ecclesiastical scholar here, for sure. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's
1: this idea of being, you know, being open to the ecstatic. There is this, you know, that's always existed in Europe for sure as well. But I'm just, I, I, and today it lives on in in the American Black Church much more so than the White Church. So sure. And but then for me that makes me question, you know, it's not just something that's copied. It's something that's within us already anyway. And I also think there's the way there's something about, you know, Black performance and Black bodies anyway that is always that's picked up on the world over and i you know i think the south is so mixed up culturally in so many ways that can there's going to be a flow back and forth back and forth in terms of the performance of christianity and so when i see christianity
0: are you referring to the global south as being mixed up or the american
1: american south? The american south but then when you transpose that to say africa for example i do see you know people are making sense of christianity for themselves and using their own cultural impulses and ideas that kind of make sense of it for themselves that that's what you're seeing a much more sort of devolution of a lot more churches and proliferation of churches it's a huge industry and you know but people are you know making it make sense for themselves whether you agree with it or not i'm not talking about that i'm not actually saying that it's right or wrong but I'm just interested literally in their physical performance I'm interested in the formal aspects of what I'm seeing and it's a performance of power too you know we talk about the Niger Delta we talk about you know this part of Africa and it's you know we're always invested in the idea of of their identities as victims when I go there yes this is a, a place which really should be a lot richer than it is it should have proper roads it should have like proper schools all the things we don't have you would never guess that this was an oil capital you would never guess it. It looks nothing like Dubai. It looks nothing like Houston. You know, it's it's broken down. Yes, at the same time, I see so much of you know, pride in people and the way that they carry themselves, the way they're moving, negotiating the space. It's you know, you know, this is an earthquake that they're dealing with. You know, there's land that's been drilled underneath them, and then the kind of the political shenanigans that are not allowed all the the money and everything to flow properly through the space. You know, and they're just trying to survive this these these facts you know, these ideas that is affecting them on a very daily basis. So for me, Prayer Warriors is about, you know, this performance that comes out of people. They're just trying to knit together some sort of sense of what is going on. And, you know, there's so many sort of crazy things that happen in in Nigeria and the Niger Delta that, you know, you can't make sense of. And they're just trying to make sense of their lives. And this is their way of almost controlling what's going on in the world, in their world. And, you know, and that's extremely moving to me. And I want to show that sense of power. You know, I want to show them at their most authentic, at their most powerful through through performance. And, you know, I, there's one artist I remember saying something about sometimes people are at their most authentic when they're at their most powerful, which is often when they're performing.
0: You said on Instagram that Prayer Warriors was tearing you apart. Is that is, is what you just described? Why?
1: I thought I got rid of that statement. I'm fond of putting these very personal kind of cur statements on social media and so, um, I often regret it. Thanks, Tyler. Um,
0: You're on both Twitter and Instagram. We'll have links to both.
1: <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, I should get rid of that. <laughs> yes, it was tearing me apart. You know why? Because prayer warriors, for it to have any kind of power and for these people to, to do this work for me, it had to be real. They said, we want prayer points. You know, I said, oh, can't you just pray generally for like Nigeria and the Niger delta and whatnot? And they're like, No. So I had to open my heart and sort of say what was going on. And actually, every time I was about to film a particular session, there was always something that was going on that I'm not going to go into here. But it was, you know, and I'm not necessarily Christian, but it was actually really nice to have someone. It's really, whatever religion you are, it's nice to have someone who's like standing over you, wishing the best for you, you know? No one can argue with that. And so that's what I had to do in order to, And but honestly, it's that their tone of voice, so I don't I don't understand all the language that they're using. I had to have a translator for some of it, but it's the but it's the tone of their voice that is so powerful. And you know, especially with Sierra Barrica, who she's the main woman. If you manage to get to Houston, you know, there's the, there's the main prayer warrior who's on an eight foot screen that we've projected onto, and she was the top and in the center. Yes. She's a, yeah, she's, you have three screens at the front, which, which have the heads of certain prayer warriors, but then she's like the main one. She's the main one because she's the person that inspired me to make the piece. I met her and, you know, when she prayed for me, because it was actually a group crowd with my, the women that I've invited to become part of my masquerade group. And because most of them are Christian and masquerade is not seen as very Christian, we thought it was a good thing to end the session with prayer. And so we did. And this woman steps forward and begins to pray for me. And the power of her prayer, I was filming her, but I was crying and I was shaking, trying to film her. But you know, I couldn't, the tonality of her voice, the sort of conviction of her of her tone and her movements and the women around her, it was very, very, very moving. And actually, Amy, my curator, one time came out and experienced some of this prayer with these women. And she, was, she said she was moved to tears at one point. It's very, very affecting. And she was one that inspired me to make this piece because after that, my dreams changed, oddly. It was that that night I went to sleep, my dreams changed. I felt completely different. Something is happening here. And there's a power here that, you know, no one attributes to the Niger Delta and also a feminine power that people don't think about. And I want to release that. I want people to feel it. It's not, forget about the fact that she's a Christian. Forget about the fact she's talking about Jesus. Forget about all of that. There is something going through her body, through her movements, and through the tonality of her voice that's incredibly powerful if you open yourself to it. And that is what I wanted to share. So I wanted to also, you know, I'm, as a typical Afropolitan, against kind of victim culture and always being seen as a victim, I don't see that that's a particularly powerful position to be in. Most Nigerians feel this way, I have to tell you. And so for me, you know, to move out of our situation in the Niger Delta, we have to reflect ourselves back to ourselves differently. And so for me, I want to draw out these women's power, you know, because also I feel like they're such a hyper-masculine place. And even people that come that talk about the Niger Delta. Photographers, NGO people, whatever, you know, if you Google Nigel Delta, you see the imagery they, they produce. It's super hyper male. You know, you have the militants and their, their Uzis and their guns and their bullets. And, you know, there's, that's what people love to feed into. And it's like the male reporters and photographers that are also part of that story. And so I've entered into it not as a reporter, as an artist you know, and I've opened myself up in a completely different way, allowing new energies in, new ideas in, and also a lot more sort of feminine ideas in as well, and and other energies. And for me, that is one of the things that I wanted to share. When I say feminine energies, that doesn't mean that it can't be embodied in a man. You know, Prayer Warriors has many men in, in the work as well. I've only chosen four for this particular iteration, there'll be others, but I'm just saying this kind of force and this kind of opening up to a higher power and having that move through your body in particular ways. That is what I'm interested in, demonstrating. And for me, that's a new energy, a new idea about the Niger Delta that's very important to to share, not only with the world, but with ourselves.
0: My guest is Zina Sarawiwa. We'll be right back after a break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talent such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. Originally organized by the Dykter-Holland and called Picasso in Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents Italian artist Giuseppe Panone's first U.S. Museum exhibition in more than 30 years. The exhibition, Being the River, Repeating the Forest, features 24 works from Pannone's long career highlighting the artist's deep and abiding interest in the creative forces of the artist and those of nature, reflecting the complex and intimate connection between humans and the world we inhabit. See Being the River Repeating the Forest from September 19, 2015 to January 10, 2016. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. And now back to my conversation with Zena wiwa The last shared theme across a range of your work I wanted to to bring up is this question of there being a second person or an alternate personality or at least a duality within many of your protagonists, Phyllis, deliverance of comfort right through to even the invisible man, where the in, in which the mask you make has you know is Janus faced both forward and backward different colors and one of you know in most of those pieces the second personality if you will engages what in the west has come to be known as, as trickster myths do trickster myths and the idea of kind of the playful, subversive duality within us, is that an interest?
1: You know, it's so interesting because li- this idea that there's this duality, you're presenting this to me for the first time. I'm like, whoa, you're so right. I do do that. about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Duality is so interesting. Listen, the idea of the trickster, I didn't encounter it in Africa at all. I encountered it in Brazil. Idea of eschew the tricks are there which is obviously from the Yoruba but I didn't encounter any of this side of like that whole spiritual reading of life or the animism I didn't encounter any of that growing up at all in Nigeria or even in the UK, where there is a lot of that kind of anim- animism, actually, by, you know, white English people. But I didn't encounter that side of that world of the world until I went to like Brazil and Cuba, etc. And that's when I came across this kind of a new form of this Yoruba culture, and this trickster figure, which is actually not just Yoruba; it's all over, actually all, o- all over Africa, and probably many cultures around the world. No, I think so it is. Yeah, yeah. so the trickster figure is super interesting. I mean, I'm also a twin. So maybe <laughs> the duality idea thing there as well. And- You know, so I don't know. That's a really, that's wonderful. Thank you for that, Tyler. I think, (laughs) like I said, I don't, I don't analyze my work. I I actually actively try not to. One of the pieces I made called Table Manners, which is just people eating. That was like one of the purest. It's a
0: video piece. We'll have some samples of it on manpodcast.com.
1: Yeah, for me, that was another like, much too simple piece that sometimes I question myself, why are you just filming people crying? Why are you just filming people eating? Why do you just film people kissing? I don't question it. I just do it.
0: Table Manners has been, I don't know if turned into is the right phrase, but Table Manners has become part of an installation, part you know more of an installation
1: work. Yes, which I enjoy because it wasn't a commission. It wasn't anything like that. It was just this thing that just was, it just, it tickled me, it amused me to make it, but it turned into a work. And yeah, and so that's, there's that thing where I, I just, I, I, i try not to question the work and this one in particular There are many ideas and impulses that i knew wanted to come out but i had to resist i had to resist and just keep it in a place of joy when i was making it just to enjoy it to just really knit together the formal visual aspects of it the colors and the textures and just make it a purely formal exercise an aesthetic exercise but yes there are all the other impulses that will be just coming out of it or wanting to come out of it that i choose not to you know at some points when people ask me to write about it you do have to mention it and when people ask me questions about it i feel like i have to tease something out but i I actually prefer not to think about it and i think that's what's happened with the idea of the duality in the janus space so it's not i mean i I will come around thinking about it but i don't want to affect I, I love the kind of innocence of of an idea when I come across an idea that way. And it's so much better when I get out of my own way. And this is why I'm an artist. I don't have to be a journalist about these things. I like to not know. I make work about things I don't understand. You know, I don't get an idea and riff on it. I don't, I don't get an idea that I'm confident in and then I riff on it. I don't do that. I use art in order to inform me and to tell me. And even when I make a piece, I don't see that as the end of, a, of, a research, of my research. It's, just part of it, really. You know, it's part of a journey. That
0: kind of leads into my next question, which addresses one of the new pieces that will be at the Blaffer. We're, we're taping this before you install. It's titled Niger Delta, a documentary. It's about three, three and a half minutes long. It shows a body of water. In the foreground, there's a beach with a red chair on it and a man on a punt or on a boat kind of moves across. It's a, it's a, a kind of a pastoral. As an American, I see it and I think immediately of George Caleb Bingham and maybe even a little bit of Thomas Cole. And the the, the piece led me to
1: wonder if you
0: consciously try to or try not to include British or other Western references in your work.
1: So that piece was made completely accidentally. Once again, I was actually doing a a photography shoot with the invisible man on this beach in Ogoniland. I don't know, something about the moment captured me and I ended up, I was setting up my camera, I was just literally setting up the scene and then I just remember asking everyone to be quiet and just, there's only two of us extra people there and I have this red plastic chair facing the camera that's empty that I, you know, I had been sitting in before with the mask on my head and but I'd vacated it, set up the scene and then I just, instead of, you know, instead of using my camera as a, photo, as, you know, tools to take photographs, I made it into a film camera and I just, captured this particular moment that had caught me that's how that film came about again one of those like pure moments and also i captured this 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 figure this as you say this chap who's on a boat who's actually i think he's moving sand up upstream and moving across the the pastoral scene you know i really wanted to capture the idea of peace i suppose in the Niger delta it seems as this place of like kind of socioeconomic warfare and militancy and whatnot. And, but it's also this extremely peaceful place. And if you don't allow for that to exist, if you don't represent it, you know, it dies. So, you know, I think people make a cursory statement about the the, the fact that the Niger Delta is, is like the Everglades, where it's extremely beautiful, it's like an Eden. And it is. It's incredibly beautiful and fertile. But then, because of this unfortunate oil extraction that's been going on for the last seventy years, you know that's also been rightly in many ways the main focus. But then, how do we get out of that situation? you know that those are the big questions if you don't allow for the for the reality of of this piece, which really does exist so i for me it was, it's actually politically important to show that and just allow this just to be we can't just if you just talk about oh, it is really beautiful or you know. You just throw that out cursorily, really, but then focus mainly on the middle. That's what you grow, you know. You focus on it, you grow it. So for me, it's like I'm allowing space, clearing a space for this other identity, which also exists. And so it, this is allowing the space for this to exist. That's part That's part of the work. The other part of the work is the empty chair, which I, I, I don't understand necessarily. It's about presences and absences, and the color red is an important color as well the plastic the fact that it's a plastic chair the plasticity is important you know again it's a piece i don't like to kind of tear apart too much finally i have a
0: question that is related to your boys quarters project space but i think maybe before i ask the question i should let you or ask you to introduce the space the idea kind of what the program is maybe tell us who's on view there now kind of give listeners a concept of what the thing is yeah
1: sure so and um, when i went i basically moved to the niger delta in the summer of 2013 i left brooklyn and moved to the niger delta in order to repair work for this very show that we're you know at blaffer but also yeah so that's mainly the the main reason i also had a, have a show that's at the seattle art museum moving to the fowler moving to brooklyn museum and it's also it's also showing work that i've made in the niger delta called disguise disguise yes that's the name of the show it's a great show you know i was In the Niger Delta, you're trying to make work. Most of that work, for me, takes place in the rural areas. I knew that I wanted to make a mark locally, so I set up a gallery, actually, in my father's old office building. And, you know, I mean, he has the whole building, but it's just a, a small corner of it that I've used. I turned it from an office into a white cube space, and it also incorporates my father's own office, which I've turned into a mini-museum, which I haven't changed anything inside apart from the fact we've blocked over the window that he would have looked out of, and we project video installations that relate specifically to his life in that particular area. But then outside it, we've got these two spaces in which I've turned into a white cube. We've blocked up the windows, soundproofed everything, and it's just these beautiful white cubes, which is, seems like a normal thing anywhere else in the world, but in Port Harcourt, people don't show art in that way. It's a highly commercial venture that often shown in like the foyers of ho- hotels or in the, comp- you know, certain public areas in in, in oil company compounds because they're the people that mostly buy the work, expatriate oil workers. And so I wanted to show more conceptual work as well and allow work that, to, I mean, I think the Niger Delta has, it's not just, an, you, know, a, you know, a place where, you know, it's not just in Africa, it's an internationally, Geopolitically important place. A quarter of America's oil comes from there, or used to up until 2010. But from all over the world, you know, the whole world makes use of the Niger Delta. But its art shouldn't be just simply gracing the walls of of expatriate, you know, company executives. It's more than that. You know, the work that comes from there should be searing, should have something to say to the entire globe. And but that work wasn't being made, or rather, it is being made, but people. There's not enough, you know, people just want to make money, they want to survive, and there's no place to show that work. So I wanted to create a space where I could encourage that kind of production and, you know, allow artists to speak for for the Niger Delta. I'm not really interested in just, just journalists and NGO workers speaking for the Niger Delta. I want local artists also to speak for it. And also to invite other artists from all over the world to come and be part of that conversation about the relationship between self and environment. And so that's the work that I like to show, any work that kind of talks about that particular relationship. And it's not environmentalism in the way that we all understand. It's just really much broader than that. So the show we have on at the moment is actually an artist who is an outsider artist, and he never been to school. He's main school for art or anything like that. He's actually a, he's a knife sharpener, he's a printer, he does all sorts of odd jobs, but he makes these sand portraits uh, that he makes from pouring sand meticulously onto plywood, and he cuts them out. And he came to the gallery saying, "Oh, do you show artists that haven't been to art school?" And we're like, "Yeah, well, I didn't go to art school. <laughs> I studied economic and social history. I only became an artist." five years ago. So yeah, we'll show you. And he's been, you know, working as an artist for a long time. And, you know, he normally make, he made this 20 foot Michael Jackson. He's made these huge heads. He did like Nelson Mandela. He's on the Mona Lisa. And so I invited him to make work about local people that live in the area. So instead of it being like, you know, big famous people, I wanted to elevate ordinary people that work around, uh, live and work around the gallery. And where the gallery is, is in quite a dangerous part of Port Harcourt, the city. It's extremely lively, but it's also known for where like, you know, militants will hang out. There's a lot of drug deals and prostitution, etc. And so the show is called, they call this place Colombia, because that's what people call the area Colombia, after the, you know, the country and this, you know, Scarface and all these. Things. Anyway, so they kind of, people are kind of, yeah, I just wanted him to make portraits of these people. So that's what we did. And in the, my father's office, we always change that show as well. I, ha- I commissioned a, a, an artist who's based in Amsterdam. He's British, but he lives in Amsterdam. To take some photographs of a, a street named after my father in Amsterdam, called Ken Sarawiewa Strata. And he's done, his name is Stuart Holt. And he's done a really beautiful series of portraits of Ken Sarawiewa Street. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's Boys' Quarters Project Space. And Boys' Quarters is the name for the Servants' Quarters in much of West Africa, I think South Africa too, and I kind of wanted to, I called it Boys' Quarters because originally I wanted to do it in our Boys' Quarters. We have a Seventh Quarters in the back of our house. Um, <laughs> we, I didn't end up doing it there because my family balked at the idea, so we ended up, you know, I ended up moving it to my dad's office, but then keeping the name because I like this idea of people finding art in the most unexpected places and also looking for, inspiration at all levels of society, not just looking upwards to people who have money.
0: The San Peter you referenced, his name is Charles Udofia. We'll have a link to the show, to both shows from manpodcast.com. So you mentioned Window Walls, which is the gallery that was your father's office, now a gallery, in which you present photographs and video installations typically related to your father's life and his legacy. And I think the first video presentation you installed there was a three or four minute video that showed books from his library projected onto a window. And and, and the video is interspersed with photos of your father and and his family, your family. We'll we'll show that on manpodcast.com too. And so the video reveals that your father had a certain unusually broad literary voraciousness that he read Naipaul and Tolkien and National Constitutions, and I could keep going. So I wanted to, to close up our chat by asking you what you've been reading, if you to ask if you could give us the same glimpse into the things you're reading and thus thinking about that you gave us in respect to your father.
1: A very poor reader. I'm just so terrible, Tyler. I want to be a better reader. I've also had this very strange relationship with fiction for a long time where I gave it up, actually, in my early 20s for a bit. And it was mainly reading nonfiction fiction because I felt like I couldn't trust fiction anymore. I had this weird trust issue with it. I stopped writing it. I stopped writing poetry. And that's where, you know, journalism came in. I, always only, I was only interested in non-fiction. But right now, what have I been reading? I mean, a lot of, again, non-fiction. African Art and Transit. That's something about... Really great book, actually, which is really about... Which, actually, it's really beautifully written. It's a really fun read. And it's by Christopher B. Steiner. And that was... When I was... This in the idea of the value of African masks and, you know, that talks about the exchange between, you know, Africans and Europeans when it comes to this kind of mask making, etc. So I thought that was interesting. I've been reading a cookbook called Fabrican, uh, which is after the, the play. I mean, I love reading cookbooks and, and also because I'm also my... The catalogue for the show is also a cookbook.
0: Includes several of your recipes. Yeah, it
1: includes recipes as well. So um, I'm really inspired by Father and I've been dying to go for the longest time. So yeah, I've been reading that. There's there's a book about an artist called The Topless Cellist, and it's about Charlotte Mormon. Really great book. Really, really, it's just, a, it's a great storybook. So yeah, and then I was given Indigo by my friend Catherine McGinley, which I've made an indent into, and it's, it's about the search, in search of the colour that seduced the world. So, yeah, so that's like a glimpse of, like, four books I'm dipping into and out of. Zina saro thanks so much for talking with me. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.